It's Lars. Thank you for checking out my podcast and have a great day. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and welcome to First Amendment Friday, my favorite day of the week because everything is fair game. And I want to start out with this. Has one state out of the 50 states in America become the central place for money laundering for the Democrat Party to send illicit campaign donations down to the Georgia Senate race involving Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock? I think there's good evidence to suggest that that is exactly what has happened. I'm glad to have you with me on a First Amendment Friday, though. Everything that's on your agenda is on my agenda today. So if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our Twitter poll, and I'll get into the specific question here in just a moment. We put up a brand new question every day written from the news of the day. You can vote on it at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or at LarsLarson.com on the web. Your vote counts the same either way. But if you don't like Twitter, you can go to my website. Now, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network as well. Uh, Serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past 23 years sorry, 22 and a half years. It'll be 23 in less than a month, so I'm kind of getting ahead of myself there. But thanks for listening around the Pacific Northwest. Now, about that money laundry, understand what we're talking about here. In a federal race, in an election, you can only give a certain amount of money. The amount of money per American is limited. Now, if you're giving to political action committees, that's different, but they have other limitations. You want to give money to the campaign of the candidate that you like, you're limited to the amount of money you can give in the primary. You are limited by the amount of money you can give in the general election. Well, there's a very significant race going on right now between Senator Raphael Warnock and challenger Republican Herschel Walker. And if you haven't noticed, it turns out that the Democrat has outraised the Republican massively. In fact, the latest report uh, from campaign fundraising between October 20th and the 16th of November, Warnock had raised more than $52 million, whereas Walker, Walker has raised about half as much money. Now, if you say, well, gee, campaign finance, I've always found to be a good litmus test of a candidate. If you go out and make a great case to the voters and you say, you should vote for me, if people are persuaded by that, they give money. And it's not just the big, uh, wealthy donors who give money, but a good campaign has a lot of grassroots donors as well. So if you say, wow, Warnock has about 350,000 donors, and many of them give relatively small amounts of money. 
you know, 10, 12, 15 dollars, sometimes 25 or 30 bucks, you would ordinarily look at that data and say, wow, then he must have a real grassroots appeal that appeals not just to the wealthy donors in whatever party you happen to be a member of, but it actually appeals to average folks to the point where somebody says, hey, this guy sounds like the guy I want to support for office. I'm going to send him 20 bucks. And if you get enough people to do that, well, then you can add that up to a gigantic sum of money. Except it turns out that that's not what's happening. What's happening is they're using Washington State as a money laundry. Now, the details are found in a great report, and I'll give full and lavish credit to Gateway Pundit Joe Hoft and a guy by the name of Chris Gleason. Now, he's an engineer by training, but he began in April of this year he said he wanted to work on a data project involving elections. Now, data is hugely important. Uh, data, depending on what you gather, may be able to help you target your messaging. It may be able to help you identify which neighborhoods are more likely to vote for my candidate, which voters are more likely to vote, which issues are more likely to appeal to people. All of that is completely legitimate. But what he found was something really strange and it doesn't necessarily provide a smoking gun, but it certainly suggests that there is something wrong going on. Here's what he found. I began looking at donations that were coming in to candidates like Raphael Warnock. And he said, well, this is interesting. There are a whole bunch of people who are giving to Raphael Warnock who don't live in Georgia. Well, that's still possible. I've given to candidates who are running elsewhere in America. I might say, I really like that candidate. I'm going to send $20 or $30 to the candidate. And if they get enough of those donations, that's great. But what was strange about it, or what is strange about it, is that Raphael Warnock of Georgia, and based on his positions on the issues and the nasty stuff, he's had to say, I could, I could write a book about all the reasons voters should never put that guy back into the U.S. Senate. But I'm not talking about the issues here. I'm talking about where his money is coming from. It turns out that Raphael Warnock has hundreds, maybe even thousands of donors around the country and in Washington State in particular for some strange reason who are giving him a lot of money, except they give it in a very strange pattern. When you give money to a political campaign, you have to identify who you are. You have to use your name. Now, I remember when Obama raised money from names like Mickey Mouse or names of dead NFL players. No, I'm not talking about that. You have to give your name and the city you live in and the state you live in, and you have to list what you do for a living. So when I've given money, I, I list my employer, and I do it honestly. Here's what these people have been saying. They are unemployed people, okay? Well, number one, that might raise a question. There, there are people out there who don't currently have a job, but they have a healthy bank account. Uh, maybe they put aside for their retirement and they, they have plenty of money in the bank and occasionally they make donations to political campaigns. But then ask yourself this. Here's the pattern of donations that Chris Gleason, the engineer, found by looking at the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of donations made to Raphael Warnock. He found, like Emily in New Jersey, Emily in New Jersey in a four-day period in mid-October, made about 50 different donations to Raphael Warnock. And almost every one of them was below $20. So you think, okay, maybe there's an oddball person who sits at home and they watch, say, CNN or MSNBC, and every time uh, Raphael Warnock is mentioned, uh, they, they send him a, a, a donation. 
except the donations are odd too. $7.50. I'm reading off the uh, spreadsheet. $12.50. $13.19. In other words, all oddball amounts, all very small amounts of money, but 45 or 50 donations over the course of five days. And there are thousands of these people who are making these tiny, tiny donations. Do you know what people suggest is probably going on there? They found a way to launder the money. They found a way to go to somebody and say, listen, you can make a couple hundred bucks. You just have to take the money we're about to give you in cash so there's no paper trail and make teeny tiny donations to Raphael Warnock and make them spread them out over, you know, a few days or a couple of weeks and make them in small amounts and don't make them in the same amount every time. Don't just put down 15, 15, 15. Put down different amounts so there's never a pattern to be detected. Could you imagine any legitimate reason for somebody to say, I'm going to give some money to a candidate, except I'm going to bust it up into little oddball amounts and then give it to them over the course of days or weeks? Washington State appears to have become a giant money laundry for the Senate race going on 2,500 miles away. Coming up in just a moment, i got to talk about drugs and overdoses and gang members and things like that. And then we'll get on to First Amendment Friday and your phone calls on the Radio Northwest Network. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of nonsense. Right. You're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. On this First Amendment Friday, I want you to consider the crazy dangerous environment that adults have chosen for our kids. And it's a choice I wish I could convince adults to stop. In Portland last night, two fentanyl overdose calls within the space of 15 minutes, and a few minutes later, a third one came in. Deaths in Oregon are up 600% over just the last two years. In Seattle, police found a naked man armed with a gun near an elementary school in his truck. This freak had a brick of cocaine, methamphetamine, and fentanyl. And yes, I should say he allegedly had it. I'm sure he'll get his day in court. As of April, every high school in Portland now has Narcan on hand to revive overdose students. And I know a lot of parents will hear that and they'll say, that's great that they're prepared. How about saying that's terrible that every high school feels it has to have Narcan on hand because the likelihood of an overdose during the school day on school property inside the school building is that likely. And don't claim to be surprised about any of this. Voters legalized hard drugs in Oregon. The courts did the same in Washington. And by the way, the state legislature in Washington is still discussing back and forth, should we make hard drugs illegal or should we let them become completely legal again if they don't make the deadline of July of next year? Politicians who are still in office today voted to cut the police. Crime-friendly district attorneys like Mike Schmidt go AWOL on prosecution. And so-called leaders, some of them you may have even voted for, made both states and their biggest cities sanctuaries for the very illegal aliens who mule those drugs. They nixed gang enforcement because it meant arresting too many black people. And the DEA says dealers offer deadly fentanyl to your kids at the cost of a dollar or two a pill. Can I suggest that you start pounding on those politicians? 
to stop this insanity before your son or daughter ends up in a body bag? And if you say, well, this isn't really my problem, yes, it is. It is the product of all of the people who've been chosen to lead, if you can call it that, Oregon and Washington and the biggest cities of those two states over the last couple of decades. It is a collective mistake. Time to change course as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Jana writes in, Lars, those men of the cloth, uh, the pastors, who got ballot measure 114 on the ballot thinking this would stop the violence are either fools or liars. Instead of disarming the public, why aren't they doing their job and bringing people into church and teaching them right for wrong? The Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, they've got a whole book and it's called the Bible. No, instead they have to get into politics and say they're saving souls that way instead of the right way. It just pisses me off. Signed, Jana. I want to mention with that in mind, in a few minutes, we're going to talk to the owner of a gun store who is one of those backing a lawsuit that's being heard in court today asking whether or not ballot measure 114 should be at least put on hold with a temporary restraining order until a final case can be heard. Yes, I know the voters voted for it. The voters could actually vote for a law that's not legal, a law that's not constitutional, and I think that's exactly what they did. And I hope that the judge decides to put it on a hold. I'm not going to hold my breath, though, because, remember, it is a left-coast judge. Uh, I want to mention this as well. This came off Twitter. I happen to notice Wednesday night there was a report from Portland 911. 103 vehicles in the city of Portland reported stolen in 48 hours. 103 vehicles. Let me give you a sense of perspective on that. New York City averages 53 stolen cars per day. So in other words, for at least one 48-hour period, the city of Portland had the same car theft rate as New York City. And if you say, well, isn't New York City a lot bigger? Yes, as a matter of fact, it is a lot bigger. It is about 10 times the size of the city of Portland. And yet, the same number of stolen vehicles, 103 vehicles stolen in just two days. That is absolutely insane. Oh, and then this one. I want to ask you this question. Usually I'll take question suggestions from emailers. Is this the kind of government that we're supposed to be supporting with tens of billions of dollars being sent to Ukraine? Ukraine's president has asked for new legislation to outlaw certain religious organizations because they have an affiliation with Russia. Zelensky, that's the guy. I, I, I'm not a big fan of Zelensky. He has proposed banning religious groups, including the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. He has now banned some news stations, some political parties. He has jailed opposition leaders and now religious organizations. Is that the kind of democracy that we're now supporting by supporting Ukraine and waving the flag? You won't see that flag on my Twitter handle, and you won't see that flag on my email signature either. I don't think much of President Zelensky. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. Serving Southwest Washington. You know, depending on where you live in the United States of America, taxes are either better or worse. And there's actually a group called the Tax Foundation that keeps track. And they try to do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison between the states. Well, the Tax Foundation 
was ranking Washington State as number 15 overall out of 50. That is, there were 14 states that had better tax policies, and there were 35 that had worse tax policies. Washington State has now fallen from number 15 to number 28. And the Tax Foundation attributes all of that slide all the way down to number 28. And that's not good news. What do they say it's due to? Because Jay Inslee signed a law into effect putting an income tax on capital gains. It is a 7% tax on capital gains above $250,000 a year. Now, that's an income tax. A Jay Inslee-appointed judge even found that it was an income tax and therefore forbidden under Washington State's Constitution. So what did the Washington Supreme Court do? They said, we're going to take up the case and we're going to decide whether or not it's constitutional. Well, that's what a state Supreme Court should do. But they said, in the meantime, the state can go ahead and collect the tax before we've even decided whether it's constitutional or not. Today's best email, but you'd always send more, uh, spot brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest, currently hiring and paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators, the MEIGroup.com. Andy writes in, Lars, I just thought I'd tell you what happened today. I called the Clackamas County Sheriff and very politely asked what the Clackamas County Sheriff Brandenburg's plan was for implementation of Measure 114. The lady I got said, we have not released any information on that. When we do, we will post it on our website. He then asked, can we expect Sheriff Brandenburg to have a framework in place and when? And she gave him exactly the same answer and then hung up. He said, I encourage all Clackamas County residents to make the call, and moreover, any resident of county should contact their county sheriff who hasn't made it clear what their process will be, signed Andy. Coming up in just a moment, we'll talk about that lawsuit that's going on and about the gigantic backlog of more than 32,000 people waiting for a background check to be able to buy a gun before Oregon's gun ban goes into effect. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. You can say I definitely have a dog in the fight on this one because I've owned guns since I was a kid. I own guns today. I practice my Second Amendment rights, and I do it legally and lawfully. And I want to tell you that next Thursday, less than a week from now, the state of Oregon will become the only state in the United States of America where it is illegal to buy a firearm. It will be illegal for citizens to do it. It'll be illegal for citizens who are off-duty cops to buy a gun. It'll be illegal for citizens who are off-duty military to buy a gun. It will be illegal for everyone to buy a gun. And if you say, well, Lars, but that's only going to be for a while. Well, I'll tell you what, any denial of your civil rights for five minutes, if you were to take this and use a metaphor, take any other civil right you enjoy. Uh, you'd like to be treated equally in the in the uh, retail marketplace as a person of color. But we're only going to take away your civil right for a month or maybe a day or maybe a year. Nobody even knows how long it's going to be. But the civil rights of all those people go away. And I think that's dead wrong. There is, in fact, a court case going on right now. And I thought we'd talk about it with Carl Durkheimer, who is a number of things. I consider him a good friend. He's the owner of Northwest Armory. I've done business with him for years. And, uh, and since then, I have done business with him uh, by, by advertising his store on this, on this program as well. So he's a supporter of the program. Carl, welcome back. Good afternoon, Lars, and thank you for having me on. How long have you been in the gun business? Uh, 30 plus years. And I've been buying from you for well over 25 years. I've been doing uh, you know, ads for your... 19, 19, 1996. I once looked it up. 
1996, and I began buying from yep. you not too long after that. So, uh, you know, yep. I just want people to know that I've got a dog in the fight. There's, uh, there's a backlog right now of Oregonians who are trying to exercise their Second Amendment rights and buy a gun before the, the, the big gate drops on Thursday or of next week, and you will not be able to buy a gun at all. How many people are sitting in that backlog right now? At 10 o'clock this morning, there were 32,600. And I'll bet you that number's grown in the last two hours. What, what should people make of the fact that there are so many gun-owning households in the Northwest, there are so many gun owners in the Northwest, and yet by a very small fraction, half of 1%, the voters have chosen to say, let's make buying a gun illegal. What happened? I think you're, I think you're misrepresenting that. 170,000 voters in Multnomah County are taking away Oregonians' gun rights. The measure only passed by 26,000 votes, as when you look at the Social Security, uh, Secretary of State's um, website. So, yeah, it's... it's, it's well, I, it's no, and very... I get what you're saying, Carl, because you're right. If you were to take Multnomah County, one of the 36 counties out of the mix, the measure would have failed by well over 120,000 votes. With Multnomah County in there, uh, it passes by 27,000. Do the math. It's Multnomah right. County that has taken away the rights of, of every other county in the state. You're absolutely right about that. But what should we... And, and then let's get to the issue because it's, it's in front of the courts today. There are at least three different legal efforts to take this to a judge and say, Your Honor, this is unconstitutional. Put the law on hold for now. We'll have a full court hearing later, and we'll show that it's unconstitutional. What do you expect? Because you're one of the supporters of that effort, and I, and I support that effort. Well, I believe that they gave uh, each side of the issue, gave the judge a written explanation or, you know, their side of the, of the case. Uh, I believe it should have taken the judge maybe all of 10 minutes to go, well, this this is unconstitutional. You know, will the Oregon State Police be doing background checks for Oregonians on December 8th? Yes or no? I mean, you, you, you know, that that's the only question in my mind. Um, the Supreme Court's already ruled that you can't add some politician's idea of how it might help society. It's a historical document. Um, but that being said, I'm six, I'll be 66 this month, Lars. And life's not fair. And judges are no different than everybody else. They have their own bias and their own opinions. And some judges are activists. Um, This measure was written by a retired Oregon Supreme Court justice, or she was involved in writing it. And she would know this is not constitutional. So, you know, know, I'm I'm thinking it's 50-50 that, We'll have an answer, and I, you know, I hope for today, but we're going into the weekend, so maybe it's Monday. Uh, by the way, I one of the cockamamie arguments made by the Attorney General, because she had to answer this, Ellen Rosenblum's people filed uh, at least part of their answer with the judge was, well, we're only banning magazines uh, above 10 rounds. Put, put the permit system and everything else to the side. We're only banning that. The ban isn't actually on a firearm. It's only on the magazines. Should anybody believe that kind of argument? Well, no, I mean, the, the real story about violence in our country, some with guns, some with knives, 
some with cars. I mean, huge case in Moscow, Idaho right now. Uh, there's evil people. And until all Americans are able to realize that there's people that need that have mental health issues that need treatment, and there's evil people that just need to be kept apart so they don't hurt themselves and don't hurt other people. I mean, that's the issue. It, 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 I think there's 400 million firearms in the United States. There are about. You know, yeah. Well, you know, as Oregon, I understand I the numbers, told. the state of Oregon, 50% of all the households in the state have at least one gun-owning member. And it just stuns me that that, that kind of population would have said yes to this. As you pointed out, it was Multnomah County overwhelmingly that passed it, not the rest of the state. Well, we got to remember, only 60% of people registered voters voted, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep, that's true. I, I don't yeah. even, I, I'm, you know, I, at one point it was going to be 56% turnout for the midterms. So I, if we got to 60, then I guess that's a big victory. But it still says that well, less than two-thirds of the people even bothered to cast a ballot. Yeah. I, can, I, can I take a minute, and I want to tell all of your listeners that myself and my family are doing as much as we humanly can to help our customers and your listeners be able to do as much retail business for to help customers with their purchases before the night of the 7th. Um, we've worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and, you know, the, the this is hard. It's a it's an awful situation, but uh, I just wanted a chance to tell your listeners that. I'm glad to give you that. Let me ask family. you something in the in the last minute I've got, Carl. If the judge does not put this law on hold, if it goes into effect next Thursday, there are about six thousand people who work in the retail firearms business in Oregon. There are also gun manufacturers in Oregon. If the law stays in place as it sits right now, how how many gun stores will be left? in a month or two? Uh, I think within days, the big box stores will move every firearm out of the state because that's the smartest economics for them. Uh, I have spoken to quite a few of the smaller independent dealers. They're just going to close the door. You know, there'll be some of the larger independent dealers can weather a storm for a while, okay? But this is horrific. This is a crisis. And, I mean, I am so disappointed in our governor and our governor-elect that they won't at least issue a press statement for what their intention is for these 32,000 people waiting on the Oregon State Police. Now, the Oregon State Police and the background department are great people. They're hardworking people. But I don't think their their intention is that nobody can buy a gun after next week. That's Carl Durkheimer from Northwest Armory. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Let's do it. Huge inflation. It's important to note that the American people are mostly fixated on inflation. There's no relief in sight. Gas prices. Everything you've been paying this much for a gallon of gas? In some parts of California, they're paying $4.50 a gallon. Multi-trillion dollar government programs. The price tag for this bill, $1.75 trillion. And the recovery bill passed in March is close to $5 trillion. Big Brother has taken control and wants more from you. Every single day. This is Government Gone Wild. Let's do the 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a First Amendment Friday. I want to ask you this question because I think this is a great example of uh, government gone wild. And then I'll take your comments at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, I'll give you the poll question in just a moment. But this is a perfect example of government gone wild. Uh, Coin TV is reporting, and I may talk to the reporter who did the story next week, but they quote a guy by the name of Chris Adlam, who is a regional fire specialist at Oregon State University. And he says he's heard that insurance providers are now canceling the fire insurance policies of many people who uh, live in the state. Now, most of them live in rural areas near forest lands. But he says, it's not exactly a surprise to me, but a bit of a shock still, because I thought that having found this policy, it was going to be there in the future. I didn't realize that one day I'd call them and they say, oh, by the way, we're not going to renew your insurance policy. After the Labor Day 2020 wildfires destroyed more than 4,000 homes around the state, Insurance carriers have made and are continuing to make changes in their underwriting practices that have resulted in more people losing coverage. Now, a few months ago, there was a big controversy because the state of Oregon's legislature made this brilliant decision. I mean, there's such a bunch of rocket scientists down there in Salem, not much different than Olympia, but there it is. And what they said was, we're going to mandate that the state make up maps of the dangerous parts of the state and the non-dangerous parts. And a lot of people got very upset about it and very worried about it because they said, if you make a map and declare my home is in a high wildfire zone, I'm going to have a tough time hanging on to insurance. Well, I talked to some of the people in the insurance business and they said, Lars, we already do our own mapping. We already develop our own data. We're not going to depend on the state's maps necessarily. But this is another problem altogether. And I pointed out to you the numbers. If you look at the period from about 1955 to 1987, about 32 years, a third of a century, there were almost no big wildfires at all during that entire 30-year period. The number of wildfires north of 10,000 acres in any one year was one. In 32 years, there was one that was bigger than 10,000 acres. In an entire one-third of a century, one fire bigger than 10,000 acres. Do you know what the average is now for Oregon and Washington? In Oregon, an average of 500,000 acres burn every single year. In Washington State, about 600,000 acres burn every single year. That has become the new norm. The old norm, when you still allowed logging in the forest, when you still had uh, uh, logging roads that were in good shape, so you could actually access parts of the forest when you had active logging operations going on. Yes, yeah, sometimes logging operations would start a small fire, but you had equipment on hand right there in the hands of the people who knew how to use it, and the fires got put out very quickly. Today, there's a whole lot less logging because both states have hugged the tree. They basically said, oh, we don't believe in cutting trees down. We believe in just preserving them and then burning them. That's what they've done. So the norm, the abnormal year would be 2020 when you had about a million acres burn along with 4,000 homes. Now, if you're an insurance company and you look at this situation and say the states of Oregon and Washington and the federal government through the Forest Service and the politicians have all decided that fires are the norm. 
that we've gone from almost zero forest fires, uh, any big fires of any consequence, to a routine half a million acres in Oregon, two-thirds of a million acres in Washington State. If that is the new norm, we as an insurance company have to change the rules. I mean, when you insure any kind of thing, if you insure cars, and all of a sudden you find out one city, for whatever reason, lack of police, not enforcement of laws, whatever it is, if you have a whole bunch more car wrecks every year, your insurance rates are going to go up. If you can manage to push car wrecks down, then your insurance rates go down. And if they go up enough, the insurance company says, look, we can't afford to write insurance to people. Uh, you know, they every insurance company has to figure how many of all the one million houses we insure every year, how many of them are going to burn to the ground? How many of them are going to suffer some damage from a fire? When the number gets big enough, it doesn't matter how much you're willing to pay in insurance premiums, it doesn't work as a business. So the insurance just goes away. So what you end up with is no option for people who live in those areas where there's high fire danger. They can do everything they want to do to clear the land around their house, to reduce the fire dangers, to put tile or some other kind of a fireproof surface as their roof. But the fact is that the forest around your house catches fire, your house is probably going to go up in flames. And your insurance company knows that. And so I know there are people who curse insurance companies. I got no direct dog in the fight there other than that I, I pay my own insurance premiums every month. But if the insurance company says, if we are guaranteed to lose every single time on this equation, then we're going to cash in and walk away from the table. That's how it works. It's First Amendment Friday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's that's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's First Amendment Friday, and that's the day we open up the phone lines and every single subject is fair game. And you can call in if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism. It's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. By the way, word just came down before we get to the subject I'm about to talk about, which is the declining use of transit all the while transit agencies are demanding billions of dollars of new invest in, investment in something that people are using less and less. But I want to tell you that Elon Musk has just tweeted out that one of the most contentious issues of the last couple of years, the deliberate suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story, including the ties to Ukraine, the ties to Moscow, the ties to Beijing, and the money made by the Biden crime family, including the portion set aside for the big guy, 
these days known as President Biden, uh, he's going to release the entire story and all the internal documents from Twitter less than an hour from now. As we get a hold of it, we'll let you know what we find in it. Uh, first, I want to get to John Lee, though. Uh, John, welcome back to the program. I think people may be surprised if they listen to mainstream media to learn that transit, which is constantly being pushed by politicians in both Oregon and Washington, saying we have to push uh, billions of dollars into transit. I mean, Seattle's and Puget Sound are right in the middle of spending $50 billion on light rail lines. They spend massive amounts of money on new buses and high-speed buses and all the rest of this. But when you actually look at the numbers, as you have done, you find that there are fewer and fewer people using transit. Transit ridership is declining. Is it unfair to to put it that way? Lars, as always, you're spot on. Earlier this week, the Washington State DOT released a multimodal dashboard. Ooh, the latest, greatest waste of our taxpayer dollars. (laughs) Buried in all of that, statewide mass transit for commuters dropped to only 2.1% of total trips in 2021. That was down from 7.1% in 2019, basically a 70% drop statewide in transit use during the pandemic. Separately, digging in, there was a report on Seattle, who we know love mass transit. Transit ridership dropped from 43% of trips to just over 18% during the pandemic, whereas single occupancy vehicle trips only declined 1%. Clearly, people don't want to ride and don't trust mass transit. They'd rather be in their private cars. And by the way, if that's 2021, so you've got 2019, a pre-pandemic year, you've got 2021 when the pandemic was ending and things were getting back to normal, wouldn't you have expected to see transit ridership at least stay steady from 2019 or even tick up just a little bit? Exactly right. And the reality is that most of the transit agencies are saying full ridership will not recover to pre-pandemic levels until the end of this century. The what, little, what, 80 years from now? No, I'm sorry. End of this decade. decade. You okay. caught me right there. Thank you, buddy. I was, uh, was going to say. But, but, but hold on, John. <laughs> John. We're not talking about something that's a uh, discretionary thing, like a consumption of a certain kind of food or drink or whatever. People either have to get to work or they don't. They either have to get to school or they don't. So how is it that they, that they still are, are suggesting, well, but, but it'll come back within, say, eight years by 2030. What, what are these people doing in the meantime? <laughs> Spending more of our tax dollars. Um, Part of that same report here in Clark County, suburb of Portland, that same WashDOT report shared that only four-tenths of one percent of trips on the Interstate 5 bridge into Portland are on transit buses. That translates to less than a 1,000 people a day. And yet, as you nailed, the Interstate Bridge Replacement Team, Greg Johnson, wants us to spend $1.3 billion for a three-mile high-capacity light rail extension into Vancouver. And that can carry a maximum of 1,000 people an hour. It's such an outrageous waste. Well, John, that makes no... 
It makes no sense to pump billions of dollars into a system that's seeing less ridership. I've got a theory about why I think ridership has gone down, and it's not the economy. But do you have any idea? Do you have a a, a reason to suggest? Well, clearly, the pandemic scared people out of being packed in tight places with a lot of other people, let alone safety concerns, both in Seattle and Portland, about being on any form of mass transit. Um, Or or being anywhere near the city's downtown areas like Portland's downtown or Seattle's downtown because they've turned dangerous. Exactly right. And these transit systems were all based when all the jobs were in downtown. And as we know, more and more employers are either letting their employees work from home or employers are shifting away from the downtown core out to the suburbs where their costs are cheaper and it's safer, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a more reasonable level of government services. Well, the other thing about that is they say, well, this is from people working from home. Yeah, there are a certain number of jobs, lawyer, maybe accountant, uh, you know, uh, architect can work from home. The person who works the retail job, the person who works uh, uh, the, the job where you have to show up at the office because you have to talk to customers, we've pretty well maxed that out, haven't we? And as I understand the numbers, it's maybe 20% of the workforce that can actually work it, it, to any large degree from home. The other 80% have to be at the, jo- at the workplace. Am I wrong about that? Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And as we are seeing all around the country, Employers are saying, no, I want people back in the office. I want them doing the job because there's a productivity advantage to that. An amazing aspect of the reality here for CTRAN, the Clark County bus system, they are now projecting in the next five years, their ridership will only grow to 75% of pre-pandemic levels. So they're not even going to fully recover as to where they were in 2019. And yet, during that same five-year period, they want to spend $252 million taxpayer dollars on capital projects, expanding systems. Unbelievable. Well, I got to tell you, John, what you've just found in that data matches up with what John Charles at the Cascade Policy Institute has found. That is, for the last couple of decades, transit ridership per capita has not been going up. It's been going down. And that's even as cities get denser, parking gets more expensive, you know, and all the rest of that, that that per capita use of transit has been going down, not going up. All the while, the transit agencies, especially the big ones, are saying we have to spend billions of dollars to convert to electric buses. We have to build billions of dollars worth of light rail trains and all the rest of that for a system that's serving fewer and fewer people from within the population. That's John Lee, retired airline pilot and a reporter for Clark County today, also an activist on the subject of transit. Coming up in a moment, have you heard about smart cities? And are you worried about whether or not the government will find new and disgusting ways to spy on you? I'll get to that coming up next. Your streets are spying on you. Your mobile phone is spying on you. Your cities are spying on you. And the infrastructure for future lockdowns is being put into place right now. That is a member of Australia's parliament making the argument that so-called smart cities are actually setting the government up to have an amazing amount of capability to spy on citizens. Now, that's in Australia. 
but I think we have the same concern here in the United States of America. And I wanted to share some of this guy's comments with you in just a moment. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to have you with me. And if you'd like to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers, you always go right to the head of the line. That's been the rule for more than 25 years. It'll continue to be the rule. And if you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places, at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Somebody sent me this the other day, and it's from the last year or so. I can't exactly pin down the date, but this is a member of Australia's parliament. And what he's speaking about are so-called smart cities. Now, look, I'm a tech geek. I have been for a long time. doesn't mean I know how to work it or make it or program it, but I kind of like it. I like technology when it works for you. The problem is, like most technology, a knife is a one of the earliest pieces of technology in, hu- in, in human existence on this planet. Um, and a knife is a very handy tool. It can also be used against you. Guns are also a handy tool, and it can be used against you. My chainsaw is a handy tool. It can work for me. Now, so far, I haven't had it work against me to any serious degree, but I'm well aware of the fact that the tool that is so darned handy can actually hurt you bad. And I think that applies in spades to the people who are behind smart cities. They say, well, we'll just put up enough cameras and we'll have sensors and we'll have cell towers. Well, the cell towers are awfully handy in tracking the 2,000 mules who helped to cheat in the 2020 election because we could find out where they were picking up the ballots and where they were dropping them off. And it can also be used to track down bad guys and criminals and murderers and rapists and thieves. Yes, and it can also be used against ordinary citizens, and that's not a good thing. And that's what this Aussie member of parliament was speaking about when he talked about smart cities. Listen. Australian cities are becoming digital surveillance precincts with so-called smart city programs being rolled out across the country. Invasive technologies such as facial recognition cameras, license plate readers, smart lights, smart poles, smart cars, smart neighbourhoods, smart homes and smart appliances all connected to wireless networks and communicating with each other. So what's wrong with that? Yeah, I'll tell you what's wrong with that. It's a double-edged sword. And let me give you a good example because... The arguments in favor of this kind of technology, and I've actually made them myself from time to time. I'll give you an example down in New Orleans. New Orleans has, like most of the big cities in America, ever since the riots of 2020, New Orleans has a massive problem with violent crime. They've got rape and assault and murder going on. Well, a couple of years ago, the city of New Orleans passed a ban on the use of facial recognition technology. And even at the time, I said, look, I don't necessarily agree with all use of facial facial recognition technology, but there have been some fantastic examples where the police and people who are working against terrorists in this country have been able to track down some real bad guys using facial recognition technology. So I'm willing to bet that ban will last about as long as it takes for the criminal class to really start to go to town, which is exactly what they've done. The New Orleans Police Department has now been ordered by the city to reverse the ban on facial recognition software, and they have begun training officers on the software over the summer. They do say, and this is a promise I don't think we can necessarily take to heart, they say its use will be limited in scope to prevent potential abuses. They say the technology will not be used to prevent crime 
or for the purpose of probable cause, but instead just to aid in investigations of crimes that have already occurred. So they say if somebody's been assaulted, somebody's been killed, uh, we're going to look for the bad guy. We may use facial recognition technology to find it. The problem is abusing this stuff is so very, very easy. Again, go back to the Aussie who's talking about its use in Australia. Don't be fooled. You're being set up to be tracked through your movements and through the future of your digital wallets. By handing over your data, you're handing over the ability to monitor your behaviour, which will soon be turned into a social credit score. And once the central bank digital currencies are in place, you won't get to spend your money without approval. Digital ID will soon become a reality in Australia. Many other countries are already rolling these systems out. Countries like Canada, Scotland and many others. Yeah, and that's the concern because they're already talking about digital currency, an idea I don't buy in the United States. But they'll have people saying, but it's so much easier to use. Don't worry about it. Go to the digital currency. And the truth be told, an awful lot of our currency is digital right now. I mean, these days, if you are working for a typical company, and I do, uh, your paycheck is automatically deposited. You don't get a piece of paper that you take to the bank and sign on the back. It's auto-deposited to your account. If you're on Social Security, your check or your money, it's, it's never made into a check, is automatically deposited in your account. And how do you spend that money? Well, you can go to an ATM and draw it out as cash, but men, many people simply take that plastic card to the grocery store or the gas station or wherever they happen to be, and they spend the money digitally. That's what's going to make it so easy to be able to transform to a digital currency. I didn't say it was good. I just said it's going to be easy. It's going to be attractive. And he had a warning about digital money in particular. Listen to this. Eventually, you won't be able to access any government or public services, and you won't be able to travel across borders or access health care or the Internet without a digital ID. Think you won't comply? I think you will. The last two years were the dress rehearsal and we fell for it hook, line and sinker. Australians are sleepwalking into this technocratic future. And while we're sitting around, scratching our chins, trying to work out whether this is really happening, Australia is drifting towards a dystopian digital future. And I think he's right. And if you've seen what they've done with it in China, China has now decided if you get a low social credit score, you know, maybe you accumulate some jaywalking tickets or you get a speeding ticket or your boss isn't happy with your attitude at work, all of a sudden you can find yourself not able to travel, not able to go out to restaurants, not able to access your money, not able to get on a train or a bus or a cab or a, Lib a Lyft or an Uber. Yeah, that's exactly where we're headed. Control. Control by the central governments. And I don't think it'll be just the communist governments that do it. On that note, let's go to your calls on this First Amendment Friday. Diane, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hi there, Lars. Hey, um, so what's on my mind is Kanye West and the swastika and Elon Musk. Um, I'm so happy that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. And um, I think that's great because, you know, he's like turning around, you know, like President Trump, uh, former President Trump, you know, has an absolute right to a Twitter account. I just don't understand, you know, what. I just wanted to get your opinion on the Kanye West and Swastika thing, and I guess he's banning him, right? He has banned him from Twitter because he put up a swastika. I think he also put up a Star of David. He did things that were offensive. You know, that one's a troubling one, and I'll tell you why, Diane. The First Amendment was put there to protect troubling speech, and then you count on the marketplace to punish people. I don't believe in the swastika. I don't believe in Adolf Hitler. I don't believe in the, you know, the Holocaust denial that Kanye West engages in. However, 
if you start to condemn free speech saying, well, that's free speech that makes me uncomfortable. Well, I'll tell you what, me talking about being pro-life on babies makes people uncomfortable. The, fo- the folks who believe in abortion, should they ban my speech for that as well? Once you start banning people from speaking, there's almost no stopping it. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly. Uh, I'd like to cl- I'd like to quote uh, Dirty Harry, the uh, the character created by Clint Eastwood, who said, "A man has to know his limitations." Well, one of my limitations is I can argue as hard as I want and say the numbers don't add up for green energy, and they aren't likely to anytime soon. But I know my limitations. I don't have as much of the technical background as a guy like Mark Mills from the Manhattan Institute. He's a fellow with Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science, and right there in his title, you know he's got Lars beat all day long and twice on Sunday when it comes to looking at the technical side of this. And Mark, I might even ask you to stay for a second segment. You were nice enough to ask how long this is so you can calibrate. You're a guy who actually pays attention to the numbers. So welcome to the show. I want to start with, with, you made some great points in talking about the idea that has been pushed hard without any of the details. We can simply transition from oil to alternative sources The president of the United States, even Joe Biden, talks about this. And I've told my audience, I think this makes no sense. The technical side of it doesn't add up. Uh, Let's launch into this. And would you uh, kind of draw the picture for my audience, if you don't mind? Well, sure. I mean, this is is a place where numbers do matter. Your instincts are spot on. (laughs) You're you're a smart guy. You got smart listeners. listeners. People have instincts on this stuff. But they hear a lot of of rhetoric. So let's just start with a, a... calibration on the basic facts where the world is. So 20 years ago, the world got 86% of all of its energy from hydrocarbons. That's all gas and coal. So 20 years ago, 86%. We've spent trillions of dollars, not billions, trillions, trying to avoid hydrocarbons over the last 20 years. And it's now 84% of the world's energy comes from hydrocarbons. It's two percentage points down after five-plus trillion dollars of spending. So that's not, you know, that's not a rapid transition, obviously, to say that. And the world gets lots more wind, I would say, you know, energy from wind and solar. We spend a lot of money on that. It's about 3% of world energy, not electricity, but energy matters, three percentage points. The world gets 10% of its energy, which is three times as much, from burning wood. Burning wood, oldest, oldest form of energy <laughs> mankind has tapped, and we still get triple the amount of energy globally from burning wood as we do from all the world's windmills and solar panels combined. The point of that is not that we shouldn't build more solar and wind and stuff and more electric cars. This is going to take a very, very long time to make a, a difference at any kind of scale. The world's a very big place. We use a lot of energy. Hydrocarbons anchor, utterly anchor everything we do on the planet that makes civilization possible. It's just a fact. And the fact is, you say, I mean, as excited as people are about electrics, I tell people, you want to buy an electric, go ahead. But don't buy it with sure. my tax dollars. Don't, I don't want to right. subsidize you. They say, right. it makes so much sense. I said, makes sense. Buy it yourself. Right yeah. now, you point out that electric vehicles offset one half of 1% of all world oil demand. And that's after a considerable period of time of pushing people and even paying people to buy these things. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take it further into the future. There's there's about 15 million electric cars in the world, which is a lot. There were zero 20 years ago. So it's a lot. 15 million. So if we subsidize, you know, 
like mad and convince people to buy more of them or require they buy them and get to, let's say, 500 million electric cars in the world, say, 20 years from now, which I don't think is going to happen, personally. But let's say we got there. That would displace 10% of the world's oil at that point, 10%. That's a lot of oil, I want you to know. It's uh, you know more than the production of uh, Saudi Arabia. It's a lot of oil, but it doesn't eliminate the use of oil for the world. It's just That's just a fact. And more importantly, let's just pick one thing, not lithium, because you have to use lithium and lithium batteries, but we'll pick a really common metal, copper. The world is not mining enough copper to build that many electric cars, nor is it planning to mine it, nor are the world's mining industries investing enough to open up enough mines to make just the copper for all those EVs. This, this is not me saying it. This is, these are studies done by the, you know, geological surveys, by the International Energy Agency itself, by the you know, UN and the World Bank. This, these data are out there. They're being ignored by policymakers and politicians, and frankly, at their peril. I mean, it's not, this is not an anti-EV thing. I happen to like electric vehicles, and I agree with you. If you like one, buy one. And Elon Musk is to be admired. He's frightened all the world's automakers because here's their little secret. Outside of China, two-thirds of all the world's electric vehicles are Teslas. Good on him. And he's captured half of the market share for vehicles over $80,000, $90,000. Those big expensive vehicles, he just ate their lunch. So they're all afraid. They're all making expensive EVs. But that's where all the activity resides. It's all on the, on the high end of the market. Meanwhile, you know, we mere mortals who buy vehicles that hardly we can afford, uh, you know, EVs are still very expensive, and they're not changing the world. They're just an exciting option. So go ahead and buy one if you want one. Just, you know, well, just I, say, leave, I, me alone, Mark, leave me alone. I'm talking to Mark Mills from the Manhattan Institute, and you can find the link to the entire piece because I found it a fascinating read. Just today I saw they've, uh, the Tesla said, we've announced we've got a long-haul truck, you know, 18-wheel truck. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's great. How far? Yeah. My first question is, how far does it go? And the second question is, how much? Well, it costs a huge amount more than a conventional diesel or other fuel truck, and it goes 500 miles. And I said, and then what? You know, because if, if you're in a truck and you go 500 miles, if it's a diesel truck, you pull into the station and, you know, they, they have gas, they have diesel pumps that work a lot faster than a conventional gas station. I don't know if people know this or not, but when you're filling a 50 or 100 gallon side saddle tank, uh, that, that, that stuff comes out like, like a fire hose. And so you yeah. can fill up in minutes. How long does it take to put the electricity back in that's hauling 50,000 pounds of cargo down the road? And I would guess it's going to be hours. It, you know, you get you guessed correct. So you are a technical guy. <laughs> so, well, well, I try. I try. No, I try you're, my best. No, you're right. Well, just for a regular car, which has much smaller batteries, the superchargers take 30 to 40 minutes to, to do what you can do in three to four minutes with a gasoline pump. And the superchargers result in far more expensive fill-up than using gasoline. They are very expensive to use, but that that is a, a practical issue which is not irrelevant. Not everybody wants to wait 30 to 40 minutes to fill their vehicle up, but more importantly, it could just you can do the arithmetic here. A typical filling station that has, let's say, a dozen pumps or so at peak time, you don't have to wait very long. If everybody is not taking three to four minutes but taking 30 to 40 minutes, you don't need a dozen pumps. You need 100 pumps to, to fill up the same number of vehicles over the same time period. So now you've got a filling station that's got to be 10 times bigger. I mean, in terms of its linear area, and it's going to have 100 pumps instead of a dozen, and it costs a fortune to do these things. Never mind whether the land is available where you put the filling station, or you just wait. You're just going to have to wait. 
But the truck, the truck point is an interesting one. There are lots of uses for trucks that only go 500 miles in a day. There are. There's lots sure. of lots of uses. Sure. In, deliveries. Uh, you know, local yeah, deliveries. Yeah. Fine. Well, go for it. Even, even trash trucks don't go more than 500 miles a day. That's fine. That doesn't change the world, though. I mean, you could still have most diesel fuel is used for long-haul driving, to your point. They go 1,800 miles between Phillips. I mean, they go across country, practically. Yeah, and the thing is, most trains run on diesel. And I've yeah, had people say, no, they're electric. I said, do you understand the giant <laughs> generator that's on the back of that that's engine right. that's actually producing the electricity that drives the train? Yes, the right. final motive force is electricity into the motors. Mark, can you stick into the next segment? Because I want you to explain storage and the problems, with, or at least a, give them a, a hint of what the problems are with storage. Because everybody just says, well, we'll have lot, lots of wind and solar. We'll just store the electricity. I want you to get into that. That's Mark Mills. We're going to post the link to the piece he wrote and, of course, post this interview as well. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com. And if Mark's got the time to stick around, I want him to explain this because the numbers don't work. As he said, if you just start with copper, it doesn't work. We'll get back to that and then to your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll uh, you'll find that at Lars Larson Show, and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I've got Mark Mills with me from the Manhattan Institute. He's written a stem winder of a piece, and we'll find the link to that. Uh, you'll find the link to that at our website at LarsLarson.com. Mark, uh, I, I mentioned storage. You're free to go afield from that. But, but I found the parts of your piece that talked about the idea that folks just say, well, we'll just store all that power. There are some real practical limits to doing that, even if you had unlimited amounts of solar and wind, uh, which only happens about a third of the day. The wind blows about a third of the day, and the sun shines about a third of every day throughout the year. Uh, is there a way to store all that power in a way that would actually help to replace uh, the conventional hydrocarbons that produce a lot of our energy right now? Well, the, the short answer for some uses is, of course, yes, we're building lots of what's what they call grid-scale batteries already around the world. They have value and use for, you know, minutes' worth of storage and uh, even an hour here and there in different, different regions. But it, it's beyond obvious, to your point, that as we increase the amount of electricity produced by the episodic use of wind and sun, and it's not just the episodes that are what, what the, the technical term is, diurnal, you know, day, 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 night cycles. There's more wind at night, there's more sun in the daytime, like the latter is, no kidding. But... <laughs> it's not just that. It's, a, and it's not just the weather, clouds. And you get things that are called wind and solar droughts, right? For, you can have no wind at all for a week in a, a region the size of half the United States. So what do you do for that week? Uh, if you can have no sun for, you know, days on end, that, what do you do then? Well, then you would have to store enormous quantities of electricity if you don't have fuel that you're burning. We know how much that would cost, and the numbers are astonishing. It's trillions of dollars. Trillions, not billions. We aren't making enough batteries. The world doesn't come close to that. The, the easiest example I could give is that what Europe has been struggling to do is put enough natural gas in storage in case it's a cold winter. So they've, they've succeeded in doing that for this winter. We'll see how next winter goes, but they've succeeded. To replicate the amount of natural gas that's in storage with batteries, and you're, this is just for Europe and just for natural gas, Europe would have to have built $20 trillion worth of batteries, with a T, trillion. That would take the world 400 years of, of manufacturing 
to make that many batteries based on all the world's battery factories for all the electric cars are being made now plus more. It's These are crazy numbers, and it never mind that it's expensive. This is just not going to happen. These are astonishing quantities of energy society needs to store to keep things going. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to learn the hard way, I suspect, in some parts of the world it's not going to work out so well. Well, and even if it isn't batteries, Mark, I've seen, I mean, we've had pump storage for, I think, close to 100 years oh, in sure. one form or another. Yeah, and sure. we also have some really interesting Rube Goldberg looking like uh, <laughs> mechanical storage mechanisms, sure. a tower with weights on it, things like And even if they get that, is that going to be able to, 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 do, no. to do enough? No, not close. So, I mean, the math just doesn't work. It's just simple arithmetic, not even math. The, the cheapest, first, money matters. Let's just begin with the fact that money does matter in the end. What we paid to store commodities really does matter. And storing, storing energy, storing electricity, rather, is really, really expensive. It's not, not easy to do. That's why, we, that's why we store piles of coal next to coal plants, why we store oil in the ground in oil tanks, why we store natural gas in, you know, in tanks and below ground and in, in, under compression. It's a, something on the order of 100 times cheaper to store energy in the form of oil, gas, and coal than it is to store it is electricity in a battery. Not, not, not 10% cheaper, you know, but like 100 times cheaper. It's, this, is why, this is why we store one to two months' worth of energy in any given time in our society, because it's important if there's a bad you know, weather, an event that you can't have things break, uh, you know, machines don't work well, all kinds of things happen. So society needs more because it's cold. All, all, which, all, all these things happen predictably, but they don't happen at a specifically predictable time. Hence, storage at scale. And you can't replicate the storage at scale with batteries. It just can't be done. Not with the physics we have today or the things that exist today. Someday, in the future, maybe, you know, new magic chemistry and new physics. I'm, you know, I'm very bullish about magic new stuff, eventually. But, you know, Bill Gates had a great line about the new stuff that we need. And, and he, by the way, Bill Gates also said that the stuff that we need to stop using oil and gas today, those technologies don't exist yet. So he's a huge fan of you know, new technologies, as am I. But he said there's no predictor function for them, which is sort of fancy talk for we don't know when it'll happen. <laughs> well, and, and I got to tell you, Mark, one of the examples I use for my audience is I'm 60, I'm almost 64. When I was in high school, I, I loved reading popular science, and, and they said uh, fusion electric energy for America <laughs> is right around the corner. And I, and I, tell my, I told my producers earlier this week, I said, hey, it was right around the corner when I was in high school, and I just saw a piece today that said they've had a new development in fusion electric, and now it's, it's right around the corner. And I thought, it's a really long corner. <laughs> it's a very long corner. Oh, look, uh, Fusion might be right around the long corner, but it isn't. And if, if tomorrow, this is the key, the key point, however, is I'm sure you know sort of obvious, if tomorrow we, we got to uh, a design that worked and did what, you know, produced more energy than we put in, that's so-called breakthrough. If that were tomorrow, we're many, many decades away from building fusion reactors at scale. I mean, yep. the discovery of nuclear fission, which was, in, as you know, uh, in the 30s, and then we have the first commercial nuclear plant in the early 50s. Here we are 50 years later, and it's still you know, about 10% of the world's electricity. It's hard yep. to do. These things take time to build at scale. Even yeah, lithium batteries, which are really magical. It takes a long time to go from the lab to actually doing it at yeah. scale and yeah, big exactly. enough to supply a population. That's Mark Mills. Mark, thank you very much. Mark is with the Manhattan Institute. You'll find the link and the interview at LarsLarson.com. 
Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network. We endeavor to serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. And we do that a number of ways. I've got a guest waiting in. I'll get to him in just a moment. But your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll today. The question, and I mentioned this story yesterday, should taxpayers, and this applies specifically to Washington State, this is one of the cockamamie ideas they're going to take up at the legislature, should taxpayers provide a trust fund for children born into poor families? It makes the assumption that the 40,000 kids born every year under Apple Health Care, so they are from families that qualify for Medicaid insurance for health, that they're poor and they're going to be poor and that they're, they're, they're going to need some help. So they're going to set aside a gigantic trust fund, $4,000 for each child born in an Apple Healthcare family. That's 40,000 kids born every year. They're talking about a cost of $150 million a year going off into the future forever. And then in about uh, 18 years, 18 to 35 years, the child of that family who may have done just fine without all the help, will be able to tap into a fund that could be twenty-five dollars to $50,000 to buy a house, start a business, do a lot of other things. I think it's a crazy idea. I think it's also a bigoted idea. You can find the question at Lars Larson Show uh, and at LarsLarson.com, and I'd vote no. Uh, today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the program Paul Guppy, who is vice president at Washington Policy Center, one of the great think tanks of the Northwest. Paul, it's good to have you on. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. I pointed out to my audience earlier that there's a group called the Tax Foundation that once rated, as of last year, Washington State at number 15 out of the 50 states for having the best tax policies. In one year, it has now dropped from number 15 to number 28, and there's one single reason why it made that kind of drop, uh, because Jay Inslee signed a law that is bringing about a, an unconstitutional income tax, an income tax that violates Washington State's Constitution. And one of the judges he appointed decided it was unconstitutional. And then the Washington State Supreme Court said, ah, you know what? Uh, it may be unconstitutional. It may not. We'll decide that later. But in the meantime, you can go ahead and collect it. What should people make of that? Yeah, it's really a contradiction. So you're right. A judge in March ruled that the income tax that the Democrats had passed and that the governor signed in 2021 was, in fact, violates our state constitution. We are not allowed under our constitution to have a graduated income tax. We could have a flat income tax that applies to everybody, but of course, the Democrats don't want to start with that. They're going to get to that later. They want to start with what they call a high income uh, tax. 
that was struck down, and uh, but the uh, Department of Revenue bureaucratically went ahead and started drafting rules for collecting it anyway. Uh, citizens filed a petition to complain about that. Hey, you can't have regulations to enforce a law that's unconstitutional. You know, that's against our democracy anyway. And then uh, just uh, the other day, our state Supreme Court issued a two-sentence ruling that to- told the Department of Revenue to go ahead and collect the tax. And as you pointed out, they're going to decide later on whether to uphold the unconstitutionality, which would strike down the whole thing, which would mean that these rules and regulations, none of that would apply. But in the meantime, they're telling uh, the, the Department of Revenue to go ahead and start collecting the tax. Well, and is it even possible to collect? I mean, how do they go about doing this? Because this is going to apply, for the most part, to capital gains. That is, when mm-hmm. somebody sells a very expensive house or when somebody sells a large amount of stock, uh, if they have a capital gain, uh, it'll be due on some of that sale, depending on the size. Is that the gist of it? Yeah. So starting on April 15th, they are going to start collecting uh, the tax. Uh, And, you know, I guess if the tax is struck down later on, you get a refund. But in the meantime, and it does apply to, again, very high income levels now. But later on, of course, that will be expanded and, and will likely apply to everyone. I mean, if this if this law is upheld, then Washington state is going to fall off the list of states that do not have an income tax. That's why we fell so far in the rankings put out by the Tax Foundation. Well, let me ask you this, at le- you know, and I point out to people, Washington state doesn't necessarily love its sales tax, but it hates the income tax and citizens have voted it down time and again. Oregon mm-hmm. is the reverse. It doesn't necessarily love its income tax, but it hates a sales tax with a passion, has voted it down nine different times. So at least Oregon, though, has an infrastructure for identifying income and for identifying, uh, you know, uh, you know, where the income's coming from and capital gains. How does Washington state go about collecting taxes on income that come in the form of capital gains uh, without having any kind of in- infrastructure to identify it in taxes? Well, this, this is this is a great point, because what the Democrats did was they piggybacked on the federal income tax. So that makes it an income tax. The Democrats are denying that they have passed an income tax. But the mechanism they use for collecting it is you calculate your federal taxes, and then the state takes that information and says, well, you owe us an income tax as well. So they're, they're just piggybacking on the federal Well, doesn't system. that blow apart their whole argument before the court yeah. when they say, uh, Your Honor, it's not an income tax. Well, how are you exactly. collecting it? Through the IRS. <laughs> right, right. And that, that's exactly the position that they're in. Uh, we're hopeful that the state Supreme Court, even though it can be political, would just read the clear meaning of the law and strike this down. Another piece of news that one of our researchers got directly from the IRS is we found out that this this new income tax in Washington State is not tax deductible on your I federal was gonna, tax. I was going to ask about that. So yeah. in every other place where you pay capital gains taxes, say to the federal or the state, uh, or mm-hmm. pay other kinds of taxes, you're allowed to take them as a deduction. In, in Washington State, you're going to get taxed twice? Yes, and the reason is, and again, our our expert contacted the IRS directly and just simply asked for a ruling. You know, we have this law in Washington State. Tell us, IRS, how you will treat that for federal tax purposes. And we just got the answer back the other day, and the answer is, well, because Washington State itself calls it an excise tax, they have this kind of special label, it doesn't count as a deduction from your federal taxes. So that's another double whammy that's going to hit our citizens. People in other states can, can deduct their 
state income taxes if they have one, but we won't be able to do that. But that means in practical, just so people understand, because I'm not a tax expert either, but Mm -hmm. it, it means that if you pay the capital gains tax to Washington State, the feds will then tax you on income you never received because you had to give it to Jay Inslee, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. So it's double taxation. You're, you're basically paying taxes twice on the same income, and you're correct. You're, you're going to have to declare your income total. Part of that is going to go to Washington State, but that deduction is not going to count when it comes to paying your federal taxes. So you're going to pay taxes on it again. And as you're pointing out, you're paying taxes on money that you never received to begin with because it went Un- to the state. Unbelievable. So that's well, the problem. Keep, keep fighting it. Let's hope the Supreme Court doesn't look at politics because I know that's what they usually look at. The Washington State Supreme Court seems to be owned by the Democratic Party of Washington State. That's Paul Guppy from the Washington Policy Center. I'll get to your phone calls and emails. And can the government implement laws to police online hate speech? That's next. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. If you want to dial in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you always go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Nothing gets to me uh, nearly as much as all the talk about hate speech in our society. Now, I just want to remind you of something. This is a country founded on the proposition that you can come here, you can practice any religion you want or no religion at all. You can engage in speech in almost any way you want, as long as you are not threatening people. And even in some cases, when you are threatening people, it is considered protected free speech. And yet, over the last about 20 years, we've introduced this idea of hate speech. Now, I understand that if you start out with the idea that if somebody is assaulted, that is a criminal act in most places, in all places in America, and you should be punished for that criminal act. And then along came the idea that some people who are the victims of assault are superior to others. That is, if you assaulted somebody, say you're a criminal, and you assault a person because you say that looks like a victim who won't fight back because of age, because of gender, because of their physical size, and you attack them, that carries a penalty. But if you attack somebody or assault somebody, let's say, or rob them, and you give any indication that you've done it because they are a member of a protected class, a member of a racial minority, a member of a sexual minority, a a member of a religious minority, then that is a far greater crime. And those kinds of crimes are given special attention. I have fought back against hate crime laws for as long as I can remember. And the reason isn't because I think that it's a good thing that there are people out there who attack other people because of race, religion, national origin, physical disability, or anything else. No, I don't like the idea because it suggests that we're not all equal in the eyes of the law. As far as I'm concerned, if you assault a person, whether you assault them because you think they're weak and they won't fight back, or you assault them because you don't like something that is uh, something about them that is personal, race, religion, national origin, etc. Well, now the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression has sued the New York Attorney General. This is a highly political Attorney General by the name of Letitia James, and what they've done is challenged a brand new state law that forces websites and apps that are used on smartphones and devices to address online speech 
that someone somewhere finds humiliating or vilifying. Now, I want to warn you about this. I think this, if taken to court, and it's being taken to court by FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, when they take it to court, I don't see how a judge can decide otherwise than to say, this is an unconstitutional limit on free speech. And let me give you an example. Let's say that uh, on this radio show, I make fun of the fact that Joe Biden, uh, president of the United States, is getting confused almost every day of the week. Uh, he met with the president of France this week. And in the videos, it's very clear that Joe Biden has no idea where he is, which direction to look. He started shaking hands with a man and wouldn't let the man's hand go. I mean, just just kept hanging on for some weird reason. He occasionally, when he's up on the on the uh, platform, uh, getting ready to speak or having just spoken, he will turn around and look out into space. Not at anything in particular, just look out into space. There's nothing to look at, but he looks anyway. And you know, this is a man who is suffering terribly upstairs. Now, if I take sound bites from Joe Biden and I put them on the air with him making some of the colossal flubs that he makes on a regular basis. That may be humiliating to Joe Biden. I don't care. I can express that I think Joe Biden is losing his marbles or has already lost his marbles. If I vilify somebody, I say this is a bad person because of the things that they have done. You notice that there tends to be a set of rules. Right now, Kanye West is being vilified. And in your mind, in my mind, maybe he deserves it. The point is vilifying somebody, not physically attacking them, but saying, I don't like this person because of the things they do or the things they say. Whether you like that or not, that's exactly what the First Amendment to uh, the Constitution protects. It's not there to protect the pleasant poetry of Robert Frost or, a, you know, a landscape painting in an art museum. It's there to protect vigorous free speech, sometimes free speech that is going to be offensive. If I say that people who say they're in favor of women's reproductive health uh, are baby killers, is that vilifying? Yeah. Might it be humiliating to some people to be called a baby killer? Yeah, it might be. Too bad. The First Amendment says you can express yourself. The law in this case, the one that Letitia James as Attorney General of New York is going to have to defend, is called the Social Media Network's Hateful Conduct Prohibited, but it actually targets speech that the state doesn't like. In other words, this isn't an individual person saying why they said mean things about me. I mean, one of the key things that uh, people on the left and even some on the right didn't like about Donald Trump was mean tweets. I actually enjoyed his mean tweets. I thought that kind of vigorous give and take in politics is a good thing. It targets speech the state does not like, even if that speech is fully protected by the First Amendment. The law forces Internet platforms of all kinds to publish a policy explaining how they will respond to online expression. And here's the quote from the law that vilifies or humiliates or incites violence based on a protected class, like religion, gender, or race. Well, as far as I'm concerned, every single community in America already has laws that if you incite a riot, for example, uh, there's a specific definition, there's case law to indicate what inciting a riot consists of, you can already go after somebody for that. But now they're trying to force these private organizations, websites, and apps 
to say, we are going to forbid you from engaging in speech that is vilifying or humiliating. And it's the government forcing the private company to do that. And if you say, well, private company can do whatever they want. Yes, they can. But this is New York State saying, if you're a private company and you don't do as we tell you to do, then we're going to come after you. The law also requires that platforms create a way for visitors to complain about hateful content. Well, take a look at Twitter someday, because you can complain about hateful content all day long. I mean, I'll go on Twitter or Truth or uh, Getter or Parler, and I'll make comments about we should enforce the laws of the border. And I've had people call me racist for believing that federal laws on crossing into America illegally should be enforced. But they'll say that's racist because a lot of it, a lot of that enforcement has to apply to people of color because most of the people trying to cross the border illegally are people of color. And they say, therefore, you're engaging in racist behavior, hateful behavior. No, far from it. I'm simply advocating that if we have a law on the books about coming into the United States, that you can only come in legally, the law should be enforced. If it happens to apply more to one group than another, I don't think that's a problem. But in any case, I'm glad to see that FIRE is going after this new law in New York State, where the attorney general of the state is apparently not well-educated enough about the law to understand what protected free speech is and that the state of New York should stay away from it. Glad to get your calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And these are strange political times. And let me tell you how strange. Uh, I've always made it clear I don't like uh, I don't like labor unions. I don't want to be a member of a labor union. Uh, I have wanted to be out of the unions that I was forced to be in uh, decades ago. And I even took part in decertifying a labor union bargaining unit because I didn't want any part of it. However, I've always made it clear that if you want to belong to a labor union, that's your decision. I think it's foolish, but it's your decision. And so, and I've always accepted the idea that not just the Constitution, but federal law supports the right to form a union, to bargain collectively, and do all that. So this week's events involving the threat of a railroad worker strike, and then Congress stepping in and saying, well, we're going to settle the strike by simply imposing an agreement on both sides was actually bad news for both companies and for the workers represented by unions. Uh, it might have worked out well uh, for the union members. I suspect a lot of them are not happy with the result. But whether you're happy with the result or not, do you want the U.S. Congress to be making those decisions, not just for American companies, but also for the labor unions? And people say, well, you're sounding amazingly pro-labor. I said, no. They, they belong to an organization, they have a right to have the organization, and they just had all their power taken away from them uh, to bargain and, and seized by the United States Congress. I don't like that idea. So I thought I'd get Sean Higgins on. Maybe you can talk sense into me. He's a research fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Sean, thanks for coming on. And should the Congress be involved in a labor dispute at all? It's one of those situations where, and thanks for having me on, Lars. Sure. It's one of those situations where you don't want to you don't want to see this. Um, you you hope it never doesn't get to this point. Um, really, uh, 
there was there was about another week or so to go um, in the negotiations, um, and then that was just short circuited. Or uh, I guess Monday this week when Biden announced that he was just going to call on Congress to do that. And once that happened, then there was no point in either side making any sort of um, you know further concessions or uh, accommodations with the other side in in the negotiations um, because. Congress was going to step in and just do what it was going to do. Um, had, the, had the administration not done that, uh, it's entirely possible this would have resolved itself on its own. I mean, negotiations usually go down to the wire, um, and you know, that's one of the, that's a classic negotiating tactic. You push it to the very end, and then you concede on what you have to concede on and walk away with the best deal that you can. And there's no indication, at least to me, that that wasn't what was uh, happening here with the railroad strikes. But the Congress just decided to step in because it was really nervous about the potential of of a strike i know they've done this sean i I can see that they've done it i've seen the reports of the congress okay we passed the law handed to the president signed the law does the u.s government have the authority to tell private workers you can't negotiate anymore we've made a deal for you and to tell the companies in this case uh, the big railroad companies we've already made a deal for you we're taking away your authority to be able to negotiate a deal on behalf of private companies does the congress have that authority it does, actually. Um, there, there are two big national labor laws. There's the National Labor Relations Act, which is the one that covers most of the private sector. Right. And that's the one people think of most of the time. And that was the one that was passed in the 1930s. But there was one that was passed in 1929 called the Railway Labor Act, which is actually the first federal labor law. And that covers the transportation industry. And because transportation involves interstate commerce, Congress has greater authority under that law to s- essentially step in and impose uh, solutions. And the law does, in fact, give them the authority to do that. Um, Basically, it treats uh, a breakdown in uh, interstate uh, trade as a a national emergency that it has the authority to force force the terms of a contract onto both sides. But can Uh, they do it prospectively? Well, yeah, and that's... I I guess what I'm saying is we, we give all kinds of emergency authority to government to say, If things really go bad, you can declare martial law. You can do all kinds of things in an emergency. The emergency hasn't happened yet. It was forecast to maybe happen on the 9th of December. But does that National uh, Railway Act say if you think it might go bad, you are allowed to step in before it's gone bad and act? Um. My understanding is yes. Um, okay. I mean, you may think you may you may think Congress, and I I agree with you. I think Congress should have waited until there was an actual, clear, unambiguous crisis where they walked off and the railroads came to a grinding halt uh, before they did anything. They they decided to act before that happened. Um, but my understanding is the law does actually allow them allow them to do this. Um, you know, and then again, that's because it's a different labor law than, than the National Labor Relations Act. But you're correct. I mean, there was still another week to go. Um, and there's no reason to think that they couldn't have come to an agreement in that time. They may have needed the pressure of an oncoming deadline for both sides to make an accommodation. And that just won't happen now. And the bad side, bad part of this is now the next time there is some type of dispute involving the transportation industry, the government is more likely to step in because, hey, we did it in you know, 2022 um, when it looked like they may have a strike. Let's do it again. Well, I mean, for example, does it extend beyond the railroads to all the other parts of, of uh, American commerce? No, it's the the Railway Labor Act just covers those those uh, industries that um, are you know, directly involved in transportation. I mean, because uh, the thing I think of is if the Congress says we have this authority because we gave the authority to ourselves by passing the Railway Act, you could say 
hey, there's a threatened farm workers strike. And if the farm workers strike happens and the crops are left in the fields, America could suffer, you know, great harm uh, by by crops not being harvested on time before they rot away in the fields. So uh, so we should give ourselves the authority to act in too. so you can't go on strike. The Congress has ordered you back to work. I mean, you could extend it to a lot of different areas. Uh, if they if they deserve the authority over railroads, should they have the rail, uh, authority over food, energy, or any other critical things uh, that go on in this country? I don't believe the National Labor Relations Act gives Congress that authority uh, as it's currently written. I mean, in theory, they could amend the law and change it to allow themselves to do that. Of course, that would require the president signing the law. But... Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Congress is the, the, the entity that makes the laws of the nation, so it just sort of writes what it thinks it ought to do. And uh, so theoretically, yeah. the possibility exists. Yeah, because that's the part that bothers, I mean, it's part of what bothers me is that how do they have this authority? Well, because of law. Who passed the law? Congress. So Congress gave itself the authority. We have the authority because we gave it to ourselves. Uh, you know, and, and, and then you, you bring politics into it. Most labor unions support Democrats. I don't, I'm not sure after this they'll keep supporting them because in a lot of ways the unions kind of got screwed out of this, didn't they? The House said, we're going to give you the sick days you were going after in negotiations. And then they said, no, we're not going to let you negotiate. And by the time it got through the Senate, they say, oh, sorry about your sick days. That stuff didn't make the final deal. But Joe's signed it and you have to take the deal. Yes, yeah, some unions are not happy with the administration um, for that reason because they thought he was going to stand with uh, all the unions, uh, you know, no matter no matter what. And he basically said, "Look, I'm not with you guys if it's going to hurt the economy and therefore hurt uh, my reelection chances in in, in 2024." So therefore, I'm putting a stop to this right now. Um, you know, basically, this is a case where suddenly the unions have gotten the taste of, you know, sometimes government intervention is not a good idea because it's uh, intervening against your interests. And that's what happened in this particular case. Well, I wish the American public had uh, the power to say, hey, Joe, we're, we're not in favor of what you're doing. Shutting down, uh, you know, shutting down energy production in this country is going to be bad for the country and bad for the economy. So we won't let you do it. I guess we have to wait till the next presidential election to resolve that one, though, don't we? Well, that's one way to do it, certainly. Hey, Sean, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, as always. Have a wonderful weekend. That's Sean Higgins. He is with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We'll get to your phone calls and emails on this First Amendment Friday at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, almost an hour ago, Elon Musk of Twitter, who had announced that by 2 o'clock Pacific time, that he would be releasing all the information about the suppression of the now infamous Hunter Biden laptop story that involves in implications that include the president of the United States today, and that is Joe Biden. He said he was going to be releasing that information. Well, about uh, 20 minutes ago, it was announced that he will have that released, say, about 10 minutes from now. So we don't know what's going to come out. I have a feeling it's going to be very interesting, but we're keeping an eye on that. This segment of the show, even on First Amendment Friday, always brought to you by Valhalla Tea, a perfect gift for the holidays, helping veterans with every bag sold at ValhallaTea.com. And our Twitter poll question, should taxpayers, and this is a Washington State question in this case, should lawmakers in Olympia vote to provide a trust fund for children born into poor families? 
Now, I know there's kind of a bigoted assumption. Well, if you were born poor, you're going to be poor your whole life. The fact is, history shows otherwise. There are poor people who are born in uh, children who are born into poor families who end up being poor. There are also a lot of examples of people born into poor families who go on to start their own businesses, uh, get an education, become very, very successful. Uh, Ben Carson, for example, is a pediatric neurosurgeon by training, served as a cabinet level secretary, and he grew up dirt poor. So, should the lawmakers in Olympia in the upcoming session vote $150 million a year to be set aside on behalf of 40,000 kids who are born every single year who are covered by the state's Medicaid program called Apple Health? I would say no. You can vote any way you like at Lars Larson Show or at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Let's go to uh, let's go to Harold in Federal Way, listening on KVI, one of our great affiliate stations. There are 24 of them and the Radio Northwest Network. Harold, what's on your mind? Okay, I'm a landlord, and I belong to the Rental Housing Association of the state of Washington, and we do have um, people in, in, in Olympia to try to influence legislation. And at one of their meetings that I went to, they were bragging that the new capital gains tax does not apply to the, to, for, to the sale of real estate. Now, I've, I haven't done anything to verify it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I distinctly remember hearing. Well, I don't see how it could not. Uh, uh, I, you, you've caught me off guard because I honestly don't know. You could be right. But, Harold, if Washington State says we're going to collect uh, a, an eggs, they're calling it an excise tax, although clearly it's a capital gains tax, uh, and it's going to apply to stocks. But if it applies to capital gains and the way they're going to collect it is based on your federal tax filings, if you file your federal taxes and you declare a capital gain to the IRS, how would the state of Washington differentiate between one kind of capital gain and another? That I, I don't know. I know uh, because it would be reported on, you know, I'm, I'm giving my, my tax knowledge. It would be reported on like a Form 4797. But normal, a lot of gains are okay. But yeah, but capital gains also is a report on a Schedule D, like when you sell stocks and bonds, and those are not reported on forty-seven ninety-seven. But I, okay. I, I'm, I'm thinking that rental houses, when they sell, they are reported on the form forty-seven ninety-seven because you got to recapture, you know, the, your depreciation. So that might be a way that they can do it. But I, I don't have any, any okay. Clue and, to that. and you may be right in that case. And in that case, I'm, I'm glad for the correction. Thank you very much. Let's go to Ron in Tacoma. Hey, Ron, welcome to the First Amendment Friday edition of the show. What's on your mind? Well, it is a wonderful First Amendment day. I want to thank uh, Twitter and Elon Musk for bringing that back. Um, I uh, got a couple things for you, Lars. You know, I've been talking to you about that science that's been going on, the Democrats have been hiding, and I've been posting it. I've been literally carpet bombing your Twitter feed <laughs> with the information, along with the Democrat Party, all the ABC, CBS, all the lawmakers. No, no. What What is it you're trying to get out in front of people? I didn't catch that. Okay, so the Democrats have been lying for a long time about climate change, and on True. Sunday, um, it all came to a head. 
I uh, posted it on your, like I said, your Twitter feed. You can go and okay, take a tell, look at Tell it. the audience what you're talking about, because my audience doesn't have access to, well, they may have access to the Twitter feed. Why don't you describe generically what it is you're talking about? Every 12,000 years, we have what's called a geomagnetic reversal of the planet. Yep, we and, do. Uh, sometimes you have people on your show talking about a thousand-year cycle, and that's called a full-cron magnetic reversal. Those are not as, those are not as scary, but the 12,000 uh, cycle... That's scary. That causes uh, life uh, to not exist on the planet uh, if you're in the wrong place. And basically, what they're hiding this. They're, they're not telling you what's going on. They're, they're actually, uh, one of the videos I sent you uh, shows you where the new poles are going to be, and they've even built an observatory there. It's supposed to happen within 12 to 15 years, they believe, and that's when it's going to be in its zenith. And I don't understand why. The news and stuff hasn't been picking it up, but I finally got a call, uh, text the other day, uh, two days ago, from uh, uh, Project Veritas. They are covering it now. They, I seem to have gotten their attention. Okay, and that's a good thing because James O'Keefe is a very good reporter. And, Ron, you closed out the hour very nicely. Thanks so much for the call, and thanks for listening. By the way, my thanks go to my great producers as well. Dusty and McKenzie and Donovan do a fantastic job, and we all work together to produce The Lars Larson Show.